Welcome to Your Money with DeWitt Capital Management, a show about investing, the markets, life, and everything in between. David DeWitt Jr. and Sr. and Scott Frank will share what they've been reading and listening to and what the trends are in the market. All opinions expressed in the show are solely the opinions of Dave, Dave, and Scott or any guest on the show and do not reflect the opinions of DeWitt Capital Management. All content within the podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decision-making. All right, guys. So one of the big stories of the past couple of weeks has been that Archegos family office, um, how that fund blew up pretty much. So we were just thinking as a team, like, could there possibly be risk of more hedge funds um, going through this sort of thing and taking down stocks? Obviously, we saw some of those media stocks get absolutely crushed, like Viacom and Discovery were the two that I really saw that got absolutely crushed. And so I was reading a couple stories, one from the Washington Post that sort of highlighted like what actually happened. And from what I gathered, Credit Suisse to a large extent um, has some issues and same with Nomura, but especially Credit Suisse, which took a $4.7 billion charge um, for basically being the counterparty to uh, Archegos. So, you know, there could be risks lurking out there, I think, that maybe some other funds are over leveraging and taking on much too much risk. How did um, Credit Suisse, how were they on the wrong side and how did it hurt them? I guess Archegos is one of their clients and Archegos wanted to get exposure to some of these media companies. And the way they did it was through total return swaps, which not to get into any fancy financial uh, structures here, but basically it allows them to get exposure to um, a stock or it could be anything, but in this case, the stocks with little cash outlay. And then um, it's backed by um, Credit Suisse in this case is their prime brokerage. And so when, and so one of the big takeaways was there was a bunch of banks that sniffed out the risk from Archegos early and were able to exit this trade. They also had um, some deal with Archegos, but they were able to get out with not a scratch. Whereas Credit Suisse decided to just hang on to that risk and now heads are heads are rolling at at the top of a uh, Credit Suisse. Yeah, I, th- I think this is behavior that um, you see um, every cycle, and um, I think um, I think I mean we, I hope we don't see more of this, but we certainly should keep our uh, keep our head on a swivel, I guess. Um, that more of these things could be lurking out there, but, you know, very surprised that after all eight, um, the risk management perspective, you know, CS or credit Suisse wouldn't have, wouldn't have, uh, you know, clamped down on this a bit, a bit more, um, because these contagions can lead into broader selling and consolidation. Right. I think Archegos was about $10 billion. Um, can you imagine if this happened on a, scale maybe 10x that or or 5x that i mean it could it could be bigger and then lead to more cascading selling and um so it's it is possible yeah i mean look at like back in the late 90s long-term capital um you know you had a fund doing interest rate arbitrage uh fixed income arbitrage you know levered 25 to 1 and one of if one one of those asset classes, you know, goes against you, um, you can see there how that led into a number of um, different issues and had to be had to be bailed out pretty quickly. So, um, you know, you could see more of this stuff happening. Yeah, from and then from Credit Suisse perspective, I was reading that. They actually, there actually had been some positive sentiment around how they've been performing from their investment banking, from an investment banking perspective over the past 12 months. But what, what they've been doing is underwriting a ton of all of these specs. So 
um, that's been one of their big business, one of their big uh, contributors to their business. And I don't know. I mean, that just sounds a little scary to me if I was an investor in Credit Suisse. Yep. Well, they reported a $4.7 billion loss. How does that compare to their overall market capitalization? Well, last I checked, after the stock got chopped down by a third, the market cap is around $25 billion. So that's a very large chunk of their market capitalization. Wow. For a but large that goes bank to show you, like but, that, that's but the But real, the real one, the real guy hurting is Mr. Huang, I think his name is, at Arcagos because – if they so, I mean, if it's four point seven billion from Credit Suisse, and I think it was two billion from Nomura, that means that at best that they're holding on to just a couple billion left from being ten billion. So that's rough. Leverage can kill, for sure. Yes, leverage can kill. Leverage is dangerous. It's happened before. All right, so Jamie Dimon came out with his letter to shareholders, and I think we all kind of perused over it. And I know one of the things I read that I thought was um, refreshing to read, which, and I don't definitely don't want this to go into a political discussion, but it was refreshing to read how he thinks part of the problem with maybe just in general in, in our society right now is. Um, people unfairly framing problems and drawing conclusions. And he says people present issues as if they're binary. They create and blame scapegoats, unfairly assigning motives to people and creating straw men. I mean, we've seen this a lot recently and I guess it's refreshing to hear a leader um, call out some of this sort of unfair, quick to quick to, to jump on someone's stuff that's going on. Yeah, yeah pe I mean, pe people react quickly and vehemently to situations that they may or may not understand. And then you have people on the left and on the right pulling on each other's side and tearing, you know, it just makes it, it just makes things dysfunctional. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, you know, if someone like Jamie Dimon ran for president, I'd be pretty interested in, uh, in supporting someone like him because it seems like he wants to come up with practical solutions to a lot of problems but in terms of um maybe non-political stuff um i thought it was interesting how he thinks that in general in the industry people are way too reliant on their models yes yes i think the whole notion of one size fits all um is flawed Let's talk about models a little bit. Let, an example of a model would be what? Well, from my perspective, you know, like a, maybe a, the mo maybe you're modeling a company's, you know, future revenue. And in that perspective, you can come up with all the numbers you want and projections. But I think what Jamie gets to is that you can't model um, the, you can't really model the integrity of a company. You can't model the, the drive of a company. There's a lot of human elements that just can't be quantitated yeah. or quantified. So I think in that perspective, for sure. And then the other thing he says is people uh, back into their model with their hypothesis already firmly set in their mind. So they'll just fit the model to fit their, their assumption or their feeling, which is not how models should be used. I think models need to guide be an objective guide to thinking, not confirm or affirm thinking. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think everybody, um, and also I think that there is, there's a narrative out there for every solution or every answer somebody's looking for. So uh, I think very few models are really objective. I mean, the whole point of when you build models is to, is to find or to kind of prove that it's false, right? It's to try to find that it's not reliable. Um, that way you can create a feedback loop to find something that is. So, but I think, um, I don't think there's, there's much of that. I think there's, you know, um, shorter term thinking, uh, not fully holistic. Um, that, I mean, is challenging. So, so I think we have to, um, 
I don't know. I think we have to, to change the way that we think longer term and, and how we look at models that we've used in the past. For sure. It was nice to see he confirms that, uh, you know, there's a lot of disruption innovation going on. Uh, and he, from his perspective, he sees threats to hit the, from to the banking business from all sides. And a lot of it has to do with technology. Um, I think I read that he just, you know, outwardly says, I mean, it's, it's good to see these being honest that the bank bank banking's role in the worldwide um, in worldwide money, I guess, activity is shrinking. In, he didn't mention anything on Bitcoin, did he? I didn't, I didn't see Bitcoin, but he certainly mentions how financial technology or FinTech companies. Yeah. So like a PayPal, a Venmo, a Square, those kind of, those kinds of, um, businesses are taking business and shrinking the relevancy of the traditional large banks. And so he does say how they're, they're aggressively, um, you know, positioning themselves, but it just goes to show that tides change over time and there's new trends and, and there's uh, new, there's new leadership. And I guess that leads right into a chart I saw from a blogger uh, who runs the book called Indexology. But uh, me being younger, I guess not being around in during these times, I found it fascinating that, you know, for most of my in serious investing career, I've just been under the uh, assumption that technology is basically the biggest weight in the S&P. And it's been that way for a while, but not as long as I realized, because in 2010, uh, two of the top 10 companies in the S&P 500 were Exxon and Chevron. Hmm. So, and now, now what? Energy is now energy is the small, the, the small, <laughs> the smallest component of the S&P 500. Yeah, 1980, energy was 30% of the S&P 500, and today it's around 3%. So, this last decade has not been kind to energy. But if there's a reversion to the mean. You know, there there could be uh, some move up there, along with other value stocks. Which look I think at, we can... you look at, you know, just graphically from the 70s to today, energy over the decades versus technology over the de those decades, right? It's um, the correlation is like negative one, right? So we're pretty close. It's it's interesting. So I the and, and as long as I'm not skipping one, the first constituent that is energy is Exxon at number 25 now. So it's gone from, uh, wait, so it's gone, wait, is that one? So it's yeah. gone from the biggest to the 25th biggest in just 10 years. Yes. That's amazing. And then like in 1970, the fifth biggest was a company Eastman, Eastman Kodak. Mm-hmm. Which Eastman Kodak. Um, yeah, I mean. What year I, was that when it was uh, at the top? The 70s. Now, oh, the I don't 70s. know if that, what that is actually today, but if I'm looking now, there's Eastman Chemical Company. So I'm not sure if there was some sort of split there or something that happened, but just for perspective, it's that Eastman. So I, to be clear, I don't know if this is even the same company, but 394. So Eastman Kodak was manufacture of film for cameras so when digital cameras roll around the need for film went away yep and if you look at some of these there is a trend where you know they carry over multiple decades so if you look at ibm i mean that was the 70s through the the 90s at&t at least a good 20 some years there i mean you could buy ibm today with a five percent yield it'd be interesting to see if you know how the next decade rolls and how these things jockey for position. But, um, but yeah, um, it's an interesting observation. I'm, I'm trying to think of like what could be so clearly for a period there, telecommunications had its, had its time in the sun and then um, energy. And then there's sort of the industrial general electric with technology and energy, and now it's all technology. I'm just wondering what's going to be the next to creep in. 
I think I said earlier in somewhat in jest, but maybe not that at some point, probably Tesla will get in there. At least I guarantee you there's tons of people that think it should already be the number one biggest, right? Yeah. Tesla, I, I have a feeling that Tesla is going to be, um, depending on how you look at the company, is it a battery company? Is it a software company? Is it a car company? But if you look at it as a car company, um, I mean, Ford, General Motors, and Volkswagen, just to name a few, will be um, providing an awful lot of electrical vehicles in the next two to three, four years. And I, it just, yeah. To me, to me, it's, it's blatantly apparent that Tesla is not valued as a car company. There's no way to, there's no way to swear that. I might ask, is GameStop uh, being valued as a a brick and mortar exchange or DVD for games? You know, it's like, so, so, I mean, I look at, I I take a look at something like a game stock trading at whatever price is 170 or whatever. And it was, it's a $10 stock that's probably heading into, well, without some major changes, uh, you know, a a dead end. So valuations in the market today are, are, are really hard to figure out. I I just can't, you know, is a, a couple of other things that Jamie Dimon mentioned in his news, in his letter, which was, I read, I read most of the part that I read was the part about more macroeconomic types of things. But one of the questions that he poses is, well, China thinks America is in decline. And um, I'm wondering, uh, and China's in the ascendancy. And uh, I'm wondering what you guys think about that. Well, I'm, I would think no. I've, I mean, I'm a positive optimistic person and i think america will f- figure some of its anger out but in terms of um in terms of its future i still think it's we're a we're a, a hallmark of freedom and of innovation and of prosperity and i china can think that all at once but you know i'm still bullish on america i think we've come through all periods of distress uh, Doing I, all right. I, what do you think, Scott? I think that I think he's right. Um, and I guess it depends on what is what's the definition of that, right? Um, I mean, if you just look at it from like a GDP perspective, yeah, I think uh, China will eclipse the U.S., but that's just sheer demographics and you know size of market, right? You got one point three ish billion at least that are <clears throat> known. <laughs> Versus 350 million. I mean, it's not necessarily a, you know, a fair fight. Um, so in that perspective, yes. But to Davy's point, America is still an, it's an idea. Um, it's the only, I think, revolution with a fighting chance. Um, <laughs> you know, it still is. And I, I, I do think, you know, the capital is here. The innovation is here. Um, and, uh, we'll continue to, to get better. I mean, it's not, you know, I guess, you know, it's, it's an evolution. So, um, you know, I think, I think we're, <laughs> I think we're in a good space. So, um, you know, again, it depends on how you look at it, but, um, I'll take my chances here. Now, would you guys have an opinion now? We had, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but, um, I have heard, recently a couple times about how China. So I'm just wondering if China at all thinks of itself as being in the ascendancy because potentially they're kind of like some think that they're colonializing like Africa. Um, so I'm just wondering if, are they just helping Africa? Or are they trying to like make Africa, turn Africa into China in some way? Or I don't know. I, I've I, I think it's more like, of an investment destination of, of tapping into um an untapped market. I mean, if you look at Africa, it's super interesting, right? You got a billion plus people there. Um, you know, could, could be a natural resources, natural life. resource play for sure, but also you know, expansionary of of you know their footprint. So, um, you know, you look at Africa as call it what you call quote unquote a frontier market, right? It's it's a bit it's a bit uh, less developed than quote unquote the emerging markets, which I guess China is technically in. 
Um, that, that's another interesting point is like, when has, when will it emerge into a developed, um, you know, if, if they surpass the U S and GDP and in the whole European block and GDP, does that mean that they're now, you know, developed rather than emerged, but that's a different topic, but yeah. I think they're just, they're very expansionary. I think, you know, they're looking at opportunities and, uh, and if you look at, you know, pockets of population, you know, China's one, India's one, Indonesia's one, and Africa's one. Yeah. So um, I guess so. one of my thoughts is now I'm reading an article from, it's a little dated, a couple of years old, but from Forbes, um, since 2011, China, at least they claim to have a 40% share that of China, of Africa's infrastructure development, whereas U.S. contractors fell from 24% share to just 6.7% share. So, what so were those for percentages me, again? You were, you were kind of uh, quickly. Sorry. Um, so Africa or China has had a 40% share that continues to rise of, of the investment that is going into the infrastructure boom in Africa. Whereas U.S. share of investment of infrastructure in Africa has gone from 24% to 6.7%. So from my perspective, are we just being hands off or are we missing out on an opportunity or, you know, would we maybe want to have more American influence potentially on Africa? I don't know. These are just some of the random questions that just came to my mind, but I don't know. Well, with 1.3 billion people in China, they, they can afford to send workers to various places, whereas we don't really have that. Um, our investments would have to be, you know, uh, you know, contracts, but probably using local labor, um, yes. some American labor, some both. Uh, but I think China is um, basically getting their hooks in. And um, if they're if they're financing these these projects by lending these countries money um, and then they can't pay, then China's got more leverage there. So I think it's something that U.S. policymakers should be focused on. I would tend to agree with that, but I think that was a bit of a digression. Let's let's move on. There was a great article in New York Times, a little bit older, a couple, uh, maybe a few weeks old, but from Neil Irwin, who evidently is someone who has been more of a gloomy uh, person who has seen more gloomy things, but now he has an article, 17 Reasons to Let the Economic Optimism Begin. And I'll just start with the first reason um, or the few reasons that I thought were interesting. Uh, something called the solo paradox, where uh, basically in an, innova- an innovation that might be revolutionary uh, takes a long, long time to finally translate into economic growth. So essentially, that's sort of what he's seeing. I think that um, kind of sets up his whole article. Uh Trying to see if there was a good, uh, if he had a good comparison. He had 17 reasons why he's optimistic. Yeah, we won't go through them all. He's been negative until now. Uh, If anybody had a chance to read the article, the the artwork on it is quite quite interesting. (laughs) I wish we could share it. I thought the most interesting part of that article was point number 12, which was demographics. And the United States has the millennials are entering their prime. And I'll just read it. Spending has a life cycle. Young adults don't make much money. As they age, they start to earn more. Many start families and begin spending a lot more buying houses and cars and everything else it takes to raise children. Then they tend to cut back on spending as the kids move out of the house. That anyway is what the data says takes place on average. The rate of consumption spending soars for Americans in their 20s and 30s and peaks somewhere in the late 40s. It's probably not a coincidence that some of the best years of the American economy in recent generations were from 1983 to 2000, when the ultra large baby boom generation was in crucial high spending in the crucial high spending period. So being a baby boomer, I lived this and I watched all my friends live it, you know, buying houses, buying cars, investing for college, you know, being very productive in their 40s. 
that created an economic boom that when Clinton was president, you know, re resulted in a, in a surplus, a uh, federal government surplus. But the millennials are on their way and the millennials, the size of the millennials is larger than the baby boomers. And millennials are, um, I guess, born between 90 or what is it? 90 and I forget, 86 and two. 2000, I'm not sure. I think it's 86 to 2005. Let's say it's there. Um, that group is larger than the baby boomers. So in the United States, to be a very positive, we have a, a, a and also have to add that when you're looking at the labor force, according to this article, 47% of the additions to our labor force were from immigrants. So I think the immigration policy is something that I think we could talk about as well at some point, even today, maybe. Um, but we have at least a strong middle class, I mean, a mid age cohort that tends to coincide with great productivity. And if you compare that with China, their, their labor force participation rate, uh, well, the people in the labor force that are in that age bracket started to decline in 2012. And they're going to be a sclerotic, just old country, you know, in 15 or 20 years, <laughs> they're, they're right. going to have trouble. I think that's, you know, I think they're, they're a positive long-term look on things that might be impacted by the fact that there's no young people around. Right. Well, that you had the one child policy, right. Which, which I think will, will come um, to prove out to not be super beneficial. And also that's why they have this quest for, you know, expansionary, thought process is, is to tap into other, you know, demographics, um, you know, to help, to help their, uh, their footprint, their, their economy. So. Yeah. A couple other things that uh, he says that creates optimism for him is how he says battery technology kind of looks like 1990s microprocessors with prices plummeting. Um, he says it's not quite the same, but uh, as those prices go down, there's going to be tons of room for new uh, new innovation. Long and also solar cells have gone down in price. Yep. He says a lot of these emerging innovations will com will combine in unexpected ways that we might not even understand or be able to conceptualize yet. But he he talks about how in the early part of the 20th century, indoor plumbing. Uh, was sweeping the nation, and so was home electricity. And then basically you were able to combine those two things to create like a washing machine, which absolutely, you know, all of a sudden you had people had so much more time to do other things besides wash clothes. Uh, he referred, and, I remember he referred to that as backbreaking work was washing clothes and the washing machine. I, mean, I can only imagine. I've, you know, I've, to me, a washing machine is just part of life. Uh, I can't imagine not having one. So, so then he says. So I guess his his main comparison is today how like um, driverless cars and trucks, um, how they're going to rely on you know long innovation that's been long building um, in terms of artificial intelligence, software, sensors, and batteries. And after years of hype, billions of dollars in investment and millions of, mil uh, millions of miles of test drives, the possibilities are starting to come into view. And that harks back to his first point about uh, innovation can take forever before it actually creates you know, prosperity or growth. So in this case, there could be a whole wave of you know, really cool things going on as a lot of the innovations that have been in the, in the lab, let's say, for, for, for decades comes to fruition. I wonder, and I'll ask you guys, and I would ask the broader audience, do we really think that we are on the verge of uh, self-driving cars taking us everywhere? Y yes, 100%. They, they're doing it. I mean, it's happening in a, in one part of uh, Phoenix. And I've heard people talking about who have gone on and saying that it works really well. You know, I can understand this. And maybe it's just <clears throat> my lack of understanding, but... <clears throat> you know, self-driving cars uh, require, you know, vision and seeing the lines on the road and that kind of thing. So I can imagine in Phoenix where the roads are straight and the corners are, you know, 90 degrees and it doesn't rain and snow and, you know, that it's easy, easier to get a self-driving car, follow the road. But well, you get into rural areas with curvy roads where the lines aren't really there sometimes. Um, I, I just don't understand how that they can overcome well, that. 
I would say that no one's expecting that to happen. Like, I don't think there's going to be a driverless taxi for someone who lives in, you know, in a rural area. It's going to be predominantly in cities to start, especially cities where it's practical and where the technology is up. But, you know, I mean, let's, let's be, I mean, to me, when you have billions of dollars being invested in, into this kind of stuff, I mean, the technology is there to be innovated, right? It's, it's not, it's not an impossible task. It's something that we're going to solve and continue to get better at. So yeah, I do I, think I, I can see it much more in the city. Well, I think that's where it's going to make any economic sense anyways, for those that are going to be uh, rolling it out. You know, I don't think anyone, I don't think, I don't think Tesla has any intention on uh, going somewhere where there's scale ability of it. It would be tiny. So it's going to be in cities, but Cities make as much sense because like how much does it cost to park your car in the city and store it and you don't use it that much. So I can definitely see that. Yeah, but that's but that's what we're that's what I think the we're talking about is is cities. Okay. Um and I I guess I it makes more sense to me as a taxi service in a city as opposed to just unleashing a driverless car to anyone who wants one. It would be it's much more controllable starting off as a taxi service in a city where it's where you're not just giving someone who gets in a driverless car and decides to just take a nap while they go down a country road. Well, I can also see it in trucks that are straight line highway type driving. I don't know, 10 years. Well, a lot of it could just be all predetermined, right? So like, you know, if you wanted to get from, you know, the upper West side of Manhattan to downtown, you know, it's pretty a straightforward commute, right? West side highway down and, you head in east so it could be a bit of that too where to start with it could just be very heavily trafficked predetermined destinations and then anything in between right so, yeah i'll tell you what i i i would not miss driving in traffic in the city particularly a city like new york um i, I would be the first to adopt a, a self-driving car if that was yeah real. if the driver's taxi service got super super optimized where you just had to wait a couple minutes at the most got in your taxi took you to work or something. I mean, it, I mean that potentially would draw people back into cities that for really those kind of reasons. Uh, so yeah, I've read that article. I've seen that article in the past, like people in the ba- the baby boom generation, take an example um, as they age, don't want to drive at night so much. So you call a self-driving car, take it into the city. I think you get a lot more activity going on. Yeah. And then I guess to back to the article's point, you know, with all this self-driving going on in a city, I mean, there is a ton of data that's going to be flying around the air around, you know, hitting towers, hitting data centers, going back and forth, massive amounts of data. And I think it's like the burgeoning smart city. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty exciting to watch that unfold. But anyways. Um, the amount of data that's going to have to be used is going to be enormous. If, has, if anybody has seen someone post a chart of the um, – M1 money supply shoot up to astronomical levels. It might not be what you think. Um, so there's this article called the Fed isn't printing as much money as you think. And essentially M1 money supply is money that is, yeah. the definition of it would be money that is readily available in say, a checking account, um, ready available to be spent. Whereas M2 is essentially all of the money, no matter where it is located. Including savings and money markets. Savings and money markets, right. right. So with when COVID happened, the Fed made a distinction to change um, the rules around. And so with savings accounts, as long as, as long as the account is restricted to six times you can withdraw per year, that is, it's technically a savings account. But they took away that distinction so now, save, so basically all savings accounts instantly turned into checking accounts, which meant that there was basically an accounting change, which meant that the M1 money supply going from like around 4 trillion to uh, like 18 trillion was not all money printing. In fact, 80% of that move was from the accounting change. Just recategorization. Yeah. So- if, if so, if you happen to see that and someone is saying, well, this is why there's going to be massive inflation, be sure to re- just to enlighten them because I was enlightened by it. I didn't wasn't paying attention to that, but I found it fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's um, 
uh, it's obvious that Fed printed a lot of money and gave a lot of less stimulus checks away. But if this this conversion of M2 to M1, banks, does this now mean that if you have a savings account, you can withdraw whenever you want? That's the new rule, which turns M2 into M1. Which turns into an M1. Um, This chart I thought from uh, BlackRock, the gross debt versus net interest cost. So it's a chart where you see between 1990 and today, the gross debt goes crazy, just flies, uh, flies higher, but the net interest cost is essentially almost cut in half. So so the debt to GDP percentage has, has increased dramatically, but the net cost to service that debt as a percentage or share of GDP uh, has gone down dramatically also. Right. Are we going so, to be able to share this with people that are listening at some point? Because this is a this is a great looking chart. Well, so every time I post the podcast, um, uh, I post all the charts we talk about. Oh, that's great. That's a blog post. For, I, I'll recommend people take a look at this because, you know, with interest rates where they are, the Fed, you know, the amount of debt more than doubled, but the cost uh, as percentage of GDP went from... Um, almost cut in half. Yeah, so the, so it balances out the argument that that we're, that we're in way too much debt, that we're never going to be able to service it. Well, we are able to service it because the cost of this debt has <laughs> gone nothing but down. Uh, that also, I was also reading about mortgages and how uh, the, mar- the mortgage market is roaring. Uh, people are you know buying houses left and right. Yeah, there was a house in my neighborhood that went for sale and literally the next day it was pending. Um, so, you know, I'm seeing it all over and it so is, over. is there a housing bubble? And I think I'm, you know, I'm pretty confident that absolutely not because demographics one, um, two mortgage lenders are, are, are tightening. Uh, they're not, they're making it, it harder to get a mortgage. And I don't think that's what happens when you're in a housing bubble, like in 2007. Um, and I guess I'm grateful that I bought my first home before all this. And I feel bad for anyone who maybe like right before COVID was planning to buy a house and they didn't cause now it's much tougher and it's becoming less affordable with the housing prices going up. But then at the same time, mortgage rates are so much lower than they were several years ago. I don't think it's a housing bubble because it's just, it's, I mean, I think housing has been relatively dormant, at least from in the area in the region where I have been living for the last 10 years, maybe just up and down somewhat. But there's a huge change that's just occurred. And it was precipitated, I think, by COVID, but the legs behind it, I think, are there because you have a mass of millennials that want to eventually get out and have a suburban house and a dog and a kid and a yard and all that stuff. So that's you know, that this you know huge group of people is moving in that direction. So it seems. Um, so I don't think it's a bubble. I think it's a, it could end up being a bubble. I think we're going to have a repeat of what we had in the '80s. I remember when I bought a, first bought a house. I sold it nine months later for I think 30% more than I paid for it. And the second house I bought over a three year period, similar, like another 30 or 40% increase over a period of five years, this happened twice. And I, we may be entering this, this period where there's just not enough housing and we have a bunch of millennials that want them. Um, yeah. I don't think it's going to be able, I mean, yeah, of course it could end up in a bubble, but I think there's, yeah, you're right. There's legs like, for a long time. I think housing is going to be strong for a long time. And I think that's mainly because of demographics. And inventories are, are, are really, really low. Or a fraction of what they were in say 08. Um, and the only one thing I would just look at is to see, I think there's, um, I mean, towards the summer or the fall, I think to kind of see what happens to delinquencies or foreclosures, oh. if, if that brings on any more inventory, but, we're so far off of kind of where we were, uh, you know, pre-08, um, where that was obviously a housing issue that um, I'm not sure that even, 
you know, a spike in delinquencies or foreclosures um, would be material on the current inventory rate. Yeah, if you remember what 08 was all about, it was mortgages being packaged and sold as AAA rated investments when the people taking these loans out, it didn't have to qualify for income, you know, could rent just put down 5%. There was no real checking. There was just a complete, you know, no, no oversight at all. Housing prices went through the roof and people had no way to pay for them. That's not the way it is now. I mean, right as Davey said earlier, they're getting tougher on people trying to get mortgages. This is not 08 again. Yes. I totally agree. But 08 nearly took out the whole, I mean, it was an econo- a real economic crisis. So that was, you know, I think when the, now I'm going back and harking back, but I remember playing tennis one afternoon in September and somebody said that money market funds are going to lose the dollar, not, are going to lose their ability to stay at a dollar so that there'd be a run on money market funds. And that afternoon, the Fed, guaranteed money market funds at a dollar and that halted i think in my mind that halted what would have been an economic calamity but I, i'm just digressing from our, our top subject matter at hand i mean 08 was traumatic what does bequest mean isn't that a gift or a a gift okay so i'm reading this article about why so many people intend to die with money in the bank i guess the school of thought in in uh, in ret- retirement is that, you know, you could spend your money down to zero, but no one actually does that in practice uh, of a survey of 2000 Americans between 62 and 75, only about 15% expected to spend down their assets to zero, essentially in retirement, whereas uh, 57% plan to grow their assets in retirement and leave them in t- leave, and leave them untouched or spend down very little. Um, and the reasons, the number one reason, I thought the number one reason would be, you know, to build a legacy or to hand it down. That's the third reason. The f- number one reason is saving for unforeseen costs, which they must be very unforeseen to be that, uh, high. And then the second reason is spending down isn't necessary. And then the fourth reason, which is really up there, makes me feel better. I mean, you know, look at people living longer. Um, and also, it, you know, it, all it takes is probably another <laughs> another pandemic and people start to say, you know what, you know, maybe it is good to have something left in the bank just in case. Yeah, I will admit the idea of spending down, of planning to spend down to zero doesn't sound very appetizing to me. Yeah, uh, but then what's the timing of it, right? It's 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 a completely unknowable equation. You know, okay, I'm going to spend it down, you know, but how do you know? You know, I mean, I guess you could, you know, I don't know. You could kind of try well, to estimate it, but. If you think about it, I mean, who wants to run the risk that you are, you miss, you miscalculate, you know, your death date and you run out of money. So I think it just makes sense. Yeah, it does. It definitely makes sense. It definitely, definitely makes sense. And nobody knows what healthcare cost will be, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Yeah. And like, think about, you know, I mean, nobody knows what taxes will look like. Nobody, nobody knows, knows if inflation will come out, um, you know, um, just, to, just, you know, ordinary run of the mill inflation on, you know, whatever it may be, you know, you have to, you have to account for all of it. So I think, I think it, it, it's quite a responsible move um and i think it's it's i think it's great yeah um the quote here is in this article is when asked uh close to two-thirds of the respondents agree somewhat or strongly that quote saving as much as i can makes me feel happy and fulfilled unquote uh yeah some people want a hot car in the driveway. Some people want a big bank account. Some people want the hot car and some people want the bank account. I think people have to determine what their values are and what money is a, um, is a representation of value in some way. Uh, I mean, what is it? What is money unless you can do something with it? So the hot car could be, a, could be an item that people like, uh, might want to get. 
I like that idea. What kind of hot car would you get? Uh, I don't know. One of those <laughs> self-driving ones. So I don't have to think about driving. I'm thinking yeah. uh, it, this new Ford Mach SUV. I, I can't wait to see what that looks like when it's out on the road. Computer. Yeah, I've heard. I've, what? I've heard. I've heard. Um, at least from, you know, my my deep sources that uh, which are not really anything, but a couple people have told me that uh, deep sources. Yeah, my Intel have told me that the Mach E is going to be a big winner. Hmm. That would be a hot also, car. I've also heard that Ford is sneaky, has been, and I'm not really following all that closely, but has been s- sneaky strategic on the ele- on the electric front in terms of partnerships with smaller companies and battery companies. And so look out for Ford. There's Great. a big gap between Ford's like 40 billion market cap and Tesla's like 800 billion market cap. Yes. I wonder if um, perceptions will change once some of these EVs get out there, like. Ford Mach-E, whatever it is. But go ahead, Dave. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, I was just going to keep keep this train moving. Um, last year, Americans took advantage of the increase in their home price and took out $150 billion of, from home equity. Mm. Uh, I bet you that number keeps going higher. Look and compare to how much people were taking out uh and before the, the crisis, wow, like 300, uh, 300, over 300 billion in 2006, seven or 2006. Man, it's a lot of that only adds fuel to that crash, right? Well, yeah. um, so, so total home equity cashed out. So people, so, and there's also this chart we have where um, 60% of, um, people's wealth of the uh, so in the in the bottom eighty percent of wealth in in America, sixty percent of their wealth is made up by their home. So I think people last year start tapping into that into that. Hmm. Interesting. I remember going back to the uh, housing bubble of the oh five oh six oh seven oh eight. Home equity, I mean, the idea of a home equity loan was to maybe purchase a property or fix up your house, but they became, you could get a debit card that would just tap in your home equity loan. Um, and people were just building up their mortgage by going out and buying stuff. <laughs> that's scary. I don't know if that's, is that, I don't know if that's going on today or not or how it works I don't, today. But. I don't think so. I, I think a lot of that stuff has been pretty much outlawed. People were writing checks to spend and using the debit cards to buy groceries um, because, the ho- because the thought was housing prices were going to go up forever. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I know so. guys that were speculating on buying houses down at the beach and they'd want them to go up, they'd borrow money, buy another one, and then OA hit, and boy, was that painful. Well, now that uh, between 2000, between 1989 and 2019, there's a... 37 percentage point increase in terms of households that own stocks. Maybe some of these people are taking home equity out to buy stocks, which not necessarily. What was that percentage again? Give me that again. The reach of stock ownership has dramatically expanded in the United States. Um, between So in 1989, 29.5% of households owned stock. Would now that be stock in mutual funds or directly owning stock? Or don't you know? I, uh, includes directly held shares as well as stocks in mutual funds or ETFs. So okay. just stock, any any stock uh, has gone up from 29.5% to 67.7% in 2019. Now that's 2019, so in 2020, I bet it goes higher. So I wonder if that includes money in 401ks, which is invested in stocks, because the end of the uh, defined pension plan, defined benefit plan, force people to go out and buy stocks in their IRAs and 401ks. I wonder if it does, inc- it does include retirement accounts. It what? It does yes, include it does. that. Okay. It does include. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So more and more people are relying on the market to perform for their financial well-being. Correct. All right. Let's end on this chart. Um, there's been a lot of talk about value versus growth. 
And there's a, there's a good chart from Ned Davis Research, which basically depicts the that there's a lot more mean reversion potential in value. So essentially, and it's using earnings per share as opposed to using just like maybe the stock price, but uh, the value earnings per share took a, quite the dive uh, in 2020. And it's to get back above trend, it's a much larger percentage increase than growth, which is above trend, but just you know within, I would say the normal range of oscillation. So that is suggesting that value uh, stocks in relationship to their earnings per share is at a low level right now. And those- And with the economy reopening, where I think a lot of the value stocks are levered to the economy, uh, there's, there's earnings per share mean reversion, which I guess lends some support to the idea that value will be remain in favor for an extended period of time. It certainly has a potential when you see how far down it is convert, considering where its median level is. Yeah. And like I've said before, um, I don't think it's a either or. I mean, growth, if you look at the growth one, it's, yeah, it's a slightly above trend, but growth can be stable and do well and value can do extra well. That's very possible. I have a little well, bit of both. A little bit of both. Balance is great. And me personally, um, I think the economy is going to do really, really well. And I just can't see the market. I can't square my head a market tanking 30, 40% in an economy that's doing extremely well for the right reason. So, so for what it's, for what it's worth, I'm optimistic. And I know it's, it's almost like dangerous to be optimistic amongst all the, the bears out there, but I'll just say it. I'm optimistic. Well, I'm you've optimistic. Heard, you've heard it here. Yeah, you heard it here. You heard it here first. Davey I'm not doing it. anything yeah. differently, but <laughs> yeah. I'm optimistic. I'm not changing my plan. Sticking to the plan, but. Stick to the plan. Stay diversified. Know your risk. Keep your balance. Exactly. But if you're going to have to, if you have, if you have to choose between being optimistic or pessimistic, being optimistic is a much more pleasant way to be, so. I'm all for it, being optimistic. It, 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 tend, it tends to win more too. It does tend to win more. And also, if you're a bear, if you're if you're one of those people that says Mark's going to tank, you you can always say that you were right when it finally happens. You mm-hmm. know, always being optimistic. You know, you're always wrong, really wrong when the market tanks. But really, you've just you've been right for most of history. So keep it up. Yep. All right, let's end it we're there. Here, thanks, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, and share this podcast. We never asked that, but it's time to ask. Share the podcast if you like it. Um, we're trying to grow and we appreciate that. All right. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. If you want a question highlighted on the show or have any comments or feedback, shoot us an email at yourmoneydoit at gmail.com. See you on the next one.